Leviticus 9, starting at verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions of the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle, Uzziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt and do not tear your clothes or you will die and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Why don't you join me in praying and asking for God's help as we look at this tough passage. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have not remained silent but that you have shown yourself to us. We ask for your help now, uh, that you would speak your words through Rowan and help us to understand uh, how to reconcile this passage um, with who you have revealed yourself to be. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that work alongside the EU here at Sydney University. Um, I'm married to Jenny. We have five kids. I studied here at Sydney University. I did an undergraduate degree, started out in electrical engineering. That got too hard. Switched across to science, which is a walk in the park in comparison. 
Sorry if you're struggling with science at the moment. Maybe you're just doing the wrong subjects. Just do lots of maths. That's what I did. That was a walk in the park. Um, but then I'm a bit of an idiot. I went on and did lots more maths and I ended up getting a postgraduate degree here in mathematics as well. And because I was here so long, they eventually said, please go and do something else with your life. And so I actually went and became a church minister for a number of years uh, before finally actually being asked to come back and work alongside the EU as leader of the EU staff team, which has been my great privilege to do that for a number of years. And if you uh, come regularly to the EU public meeting, which I hope you do, um, then you'll see me probably about one in every two weeks here. I give half of all the public meetings here at the EU and so uh, it'd be great to have you join us. In particular, the, the thing that the EU has asked me to do this year is spend half of all of our public meetings working through just one book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. We're just going to do that, though, in four little sort of subsections through the year. So these first four weeks of the year, we'll look at the book of Leviticus. Then after Easter, one of the other EU staff is going to come and we'll do a series on James. Then we're going to do a series on Christian revolution, the idea of equality, fraternity, liberty as Christian ideas from the scriptures and how that impacts on our politics and society. And then we'll come back and do some more Leviticus later. So we're going to come do different things in our public meetings, but we'll do Leviticus on and off throughout the year. That's the plan. If I haven't met you yet, please come and say hello. Uh, friend me on Facebook, whatever you do. I don't know, speak to me in person if you like at afternoon tea. That would be different. And you can see I've provided you with a fairly extensive outline um, of what I'm going to say today. I encourage you to take notes. Um, it just sort of help, helps me concentrate when I'm listening to something. Um, if we go really well for time, then hopefully we get to have a bit of a question time at the end. So maybe think about your questions or you can always just email me or send me a Facebook message. I'd love to interact with you over God's word that we study here together. So I want to start though today talk by talking about backyards. Now, fewer and fewer Australians actually live in a house with a backyard. So just indicate if you live somewhere currently that has a backyard. Quite a number. There you go. <laughs> my, my, detailed, my detailed statistical analysis tells me then that people with backyards come to EU's public meeting on Wednesdays and not Tuesdays. Um, but there you go. Now, I'm going to throw up some pictures of um, my backyard. You'll see them come up on the screen of my current backyard. Um, it's a very normal sort of backyard in the inner west. You know, that's about size. I have five children and occasionally they are in the backyard if I can conjole them away from the computer screen. That's, that's my backyard, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty normal sort of backyard. However, I remember a backyard that... I had as a kid, when my parents bought a particular house, this backyard, well, when you opened the back door, there was a thin strip of concrete, like a pathway, that ran along the back of the house, right? Once you got beyond that thin strip of concrete, it was just wildness. This backyard had gone completely overgrown of this house that they bought. There were very, very large tall gum trees there, but not just gum trees, vines coming from the tops of the gum trees down, reaching all the way to the ground and massive bushes and a thing called lantana which I don't know if you know what lantana is, but when lantana really goes, it's, it's, a, it's a weed but you're thinking like a little grassy soft weed. No, no, 
this is a big thing with branches and lots of sort of burrs and sort of th- you know, pointy, scratchy things on it. Anyway, this, you stepped out of the back door and you were confronted by this towering tangle of impenetrable bush. It was sort of more like that. As you opened the back door, there it was. And it took me, without exaggeration, it took me months and months and months to explore my own backyard because I seriously was trying to push through that to even find the back fence. It was weeks before I knew we had a back fence. (laughs) So dense was it. This was a completely unexplored backyard. The reason I'm talking about this is what we're going to do this year is look at a, what I think is an unexplored part of the Christian backyard. Now, you may not be a Christian here today. That's fantastic. These are public meetings. We'd love everybody at the university to come. But this is our Christian book, the Bible. And the particular section of it we're going to look at this year, on and off throughout the year, is this book of Leviticus, which really is an unexplored piece of the Christian backyard. I'll do a quick survey. Look, we're amongst friends, or at least people we hope will be friendly towards us. Um, hand up if you've read Leviticus in the last two years. Quite a number. Impressive. Quite a number. But that's a lot of hands that weren't up, actually. Interestingly, if you were a Jew at a particular point in time, Leviticus would have been the first book of the Jewish scriptures you learnt as a child. The first. Not Genesis. Not Exodus, Leviticus. And yet, for many Christians today, Leviticus may well be the last book they ever read of the Bible. Have you ever um, set out on a sort of a read the whole Bible in a year plan? I'm going to start at the beginning. You get Genesis, yes, and it's great stories. You crunch through Genesis, that's awesome. Exodus, more great stories. You power through Exodus. Bit tough at the end there, lots of stuff about setting up the tabernacle, repeats itself, not quite sure what's going, but you're, you're close to the end, you power to the finish, and you charge into Leviticus, and you get, like, chapter 1, sacrifices, chapter 2, more detail about sacrifices, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapters, all about more sacrifice. And you sort of, and many people give up right there. You can sort of understand why Leviticus is a piece of what I call unexplored Christian backyard. It's got several things going on for it. First of all, Leviticus is a very difficult book. It's full of, frankly, bizarre commands about what you're to do if you find mould on your walls. (laughs) You thought it was very easy. Clever human beings invented this thing called exit mould. But no, according to Leviticus, there's a whole system of sort of ritual processes involving priests and examinations you have to go through to remove the mould from you. Strikes us as somewhat bizarre. What about laws against wearing two different types of cloth? What about detailed distinctions about which animals you're allowed to eat and which animals you are not? It strikes us as somewhat bizarre. It's a difficult book at that level. It's also, though, a perplexing book. Leviticus contains hundreds of laws and commands which God, the one true living God, gave a particular group of people, the Israelite nation, back in the days of Moses about 3,000 years ago, about 1200 BC. 
Now, you might know the backstory. The one true living God had rescued his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai in the desert and he'd given them these particular laws that you read some of them there in Leviticus to his people so they could live as his people. But many of the commands, when we read them today, they don't make sense to us and most of the commands, it seems to me, Christians don't keep. Does that matter? Is that significant? What are we as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, what are we to make of this book and what are we to do with the details of this book? See, I think the temptation often is just write it off. Leviticus got pretty much nothing to say to us. That's probably not the right response, given that, you know, when Jesus said, love your neighbour as yourself, Christians, we all think that's pretty significant. Jesus gave us that law to follow, love your neighbour as yourself. You know where Jesus got it from? He didn't dream that up. He got it out of Leviticus. Chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbour as yourself. So we can't obviously write off all of Leviticus because Jesus thinks some of it is meant to apply to us today. But what about other commands there in the same chapter of Leviticus? Leviticus 19, verse 32. Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly. And yet you're still seated. (laughs) You clearly don't think you need to follow the laws of Leviticus 19. It's a very useful law, by the way. I mean, I catch the 413, I'm not ashamed to name it, 413 into, into uni sometimes. And you know what? It's full of school kids. And they refuse to stand up, even though they get a free ticket, which is meant, they're meant to sort of give... You know, I've thought sometimes, go, Leviticus 1932 to you. But, you know, I've, I've restrained myself. What about Leviticus 19 verse 3? You must observe my Sabbaths. Now let's not kid ourselves, a Sabbath is a a Saturday, right? Don't do any work ever on a Saturday. I I don't keep that law. Do you keep that law? It's one of the Ten Commandments. I don't keep it. What about Leviticus 19.27? Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head. And yet, yesterday morning, there I was, standing in the bathroom with the clippers, shaving away with complete abandon. (laughs) I cared not for Leviticus 19. I shaved my head. It's a perplexing book. What do we have to do with these laws? Do they have any relevance for us today? It's also, frankly, a controversial book. Uh, Leviticus, you will find laws in Leviticus that condemn homosexual sex along, it must be said, with quite a few other types of sexual relationship. It seems to permit some forms of slavery which is abhorrent to us. It has commands that distinguish purely on the basis of gender and of sex. Sorry, race. Think about that for a moment. That means it's both sexist and racist. Now, if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of the one true living God, revealed himself in Jesus Christ, this is your God who made these laws and asked his people at that time to live by them. And are you going to own that? Can you explain that? Can you talk about that in a helpful way? 
All of that together, I think, combines to maybe tell us why Leviticus sometimes is such an unexplored part of our backyard, our Christian backyard. Because we open the door and we have a bit of a look at Leviticus and then we go, and we shut the door again. (laughs) Please give us anything else. Let's go and play in the nice, cultivated, well-known front yard of the New Testament. I think that's a big mistake. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think you need to get your head into Leviticus, this old book from the Old Testament. Three reasons, here you go. First of all, God speaks to us in Leviticus. God has given us this backyard in our Old Testament for a reason. Leviticus is part of God's, the one true God's living word to me, to you, to us, to this world indeed. We might prefer it if God spoke to us in other ways. Like, frankly, I thought of a really cool idea. Why doesn't God just post on your wall each morning before you get up? Because like most you know, living human beings, you wake up in the morning and what's the first thing you do? You go onto Facebook and check. Anything interesting happening out there? And look, every morning, there, the one true living God is written on your wall. That'd be pretty cool, don't you think? Message to you. I reckon if God actually did that every day, within a year, you wouldn't care what he wrote anymore. Within a year. You know why I reckon that? Because you already do it. He already has spoken to you. He's already told you everything you need for life and godliness. But we so often go, ah, not today. We believe that this is God's living word to us. He speaks through every part of this book. He speaks to us through Leviticus. So why would we ignore it? Second reason we need to get into Leviticus. God speaks to us in Leviticus through Jesus Christ. Now, this requires you to think. This is not a simple point. It's a very important point, but I'm expecting that you as university educated people should be able to follow me at this point. And it's critical, I think, if you actually want to understand how God is going to speak to you through Leviticus. He speaks to us through Jesus Christ. See, it's not as simple as just opening up the book of Leviticus and doing whatever it says. The one true living God, see, has revealed himself progressively through human history such that later generations actually have the opportunity to know who God is and what he's doing with greater clarity than previous generations. And that process of progressive revelation began in the Garden of Eden and it climaxed in Jesus of Nazareth. So what that means is you can't read any part of the Old Testament in isolation from what God climactically revealed in Jesus Christ. And the critical point really here is that in Jesus Christ we know that the Old Testament law, including Leviticus, has been set aside. It has been 
repeal, to use a, a legal term, right? That's the word you use when you say an old law that used to be enforced now no longer applies. You say that law has been repealed. Leviticus, that law code, has been repealed in Jesus Christ. Now, there's lots of examples you can go and look up in the state law about various laws that used to apply, say, in the state of New South Wales, but have all been repealed and now you are not expected to follow those laws. Well, the book of Leviticus is like that. It is repealed legislation for God's people. It no longer applies to you today. But, and this is where Leviticus differs from repealed state laws, Leviticus does still speak to us today when we read it through Jesus Christ. What I mean is that Leviticus still gives us wisdom today on how to live as God's people, even though you don't have to do exactly what it says. Sort of like if a a parent said to you, I'm going to give you some very wise advice you know that that actually means you have to do it, right? That's not the sort of wisdom I'm talking about. When I say Leviticus is wisdom, you are not expected to follow all the details of those laws. You don't need to keep a Sabbath. It's okay to shave the hair on the side of your heads. You can wear two different types of cloth. But... Those laws are meant to inform how you do live today in Christ. Not by telling you exactly what you have to do, but they're meant to inform you so that you can live as God's person in the world today. So that requires a high degree of Christian, biblical, mature wisdom to know how to take Leviticus and apply it rightly in our own context today. So what that means is that, uh, we'll explore this as we go on through the year, but you know, there's laws in Leviticus. There's one law about when you enter the land to which I am bringing you, because God's taking the Israelites into the land of Canaan, when you come into the land and you plant fruit trees, for the first three years you're not to harvest any fruit. In the fourth year you can offer the fruit to the Lord And in the fifth year, you can start to eat the fruit. End of law, move on, next topic. And you sort of read and go, what am I I meant to do with that? How does that... Well, let me tell you, I reckon, and we'll have to leave it till later in the year to explore the details, I think that law informs a Christian approach to the environment. That law... uh, That law informs how we live in the world today. Not by telling me what I have to do with the fruit trees that are in my backyard, but it informs it, how I live as God's person in the world today. I'll give you another example. There's seemingly strange laws about childbirth. If you give birth to a boy, that means one thing. Give birth to a girl, that means another thing. How does that law... Um, now, we are set, set free from that law. We don't need to follow that law. But I think that law affects our relationships in church and in families. There's laws um, in Leviticus about buying and selling. We don't have to follow those laws, 
but they are meant to inform a Christian approach to commerce, finance and business. See, I think we way too quickly have written off Leviticus as irrelevant. But God has put it in our backyard so that we might read it through Christ and know how to live as his people in the world. Well, thirdly, why Leviticus? Well, God speaks to us in Leviticus, not just through Christ, but he speaks to us of Christ. Now, I already mentioned how God reveals himself progressively, culminating in Jesus Christ. What that means is that when we're reading Leviticus, we should expect to see glimpses or shadows of God's greater revelation of himself in Jesus of Nazareth. Another way of saying that is Leviticus is, is prophecy. It points forward to God's greater self-revelation in Christ. So I'm, I trust that as we read Leviticus, you will get to understand Jesus better. You will understand how Jesus fits in as the culmination of God's revelation of himself and of his dealings with this world. I hope that as you will understand God's love for us better, you will love Jesus more. As you understand God's great plans, I hope that you will put greater faith in him. As you understand how Jesus actually is the fulfilment of all of God's promises that we see in Leviticus, that you will put your hope in him. By studying Leviticus, it speaks to us of Christ and that should grow us in our faith, our love and our hope. Okay, so that's my massive introduction to Leviticus. What are we going to do in the last 10 minutes? Well, I'm going to try to take us to what I think is the big question in Leviticus. And we're going to do it by that frankly weird and confronting story that Steph read for us from Leviticus 9 and 10. You got it open there? It'd be really helpful to have a look at it. Leviticus chapter 9 verse 22 to chapter 10 verse 5. I call this story weird because I imagine for most of us that what it describes is way outside of our personal experience, whether you're a Christian or not. Now the context in chapter 9 is that God had given commands for the establishment of a priesthood, that's people who were going to mediate between him and the Israelite people. And Moses and Aaron, Aaron's going to be the high priest, they've followed all of God's commands to the letter, we read in chapters 8 and 9, and we read that having done all that God commanded, they enter the tent of meeting in verse 23, and they come out and bless the people. And then, picking it up at verse 24, if you can share it with the person next to you, that would be helpful, chapter 9, 24, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, fire came out from the presence of the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar, And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So the one true living God has manifested his presence, the presence of his glory in their very midst. And fire streams out of the Holy of Holies, which is sort of the innermost sanctum of this tent of meeting where God meets with his people. Fire streams out of the Holy Holies and burns up the sacrifices that the priest had placed on the altar. Now, I've been a Christian for many years, but that, that's way outside my experience. All right? I have not seen God do anything like that. Manifest his glory, visible presence of his glory, fire... Str- Maybe it's your experience, it's not my experience. Not my experience. So, it seems a bit weird to me. But it's also confronting... 
What happens next? Well, Aaron's sons, who've also been set apart as priests, they decide to get a bit innovative. They decide to get creative. They decide that, well, now we're priests. Why don't we make up some fresh ways that we could worship God? So what you read there, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Aaron's sons took their censers, put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Now, at this particular point, if you read from Leviticus chapter 1, every chapter up this point has all been about this is how you worship God. You do it this way. They've got all the commands. They know God has clearly said, I want you to worship me like this. These guys decide, and let's be frank, these guys are idiots. These are not clever people. They are fools. God said, worship me like this. They go, yeah, how about we do it with like this? And they make up their own way. They worship God their way. And what happens next? Verse 2. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord. We've seen this already, right? Fire came out and consumed the sacrifice that they placed on the altar. This time... Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. It's not the sacrifices that get consumed. It's those who offered the unholy sacrifice. And what's more, this is not a surprise. They knew it was a privilege to be able to approach God and they knew that you can't just do it with disregard for his holiness. Verse 3, Moses said to Aaron... This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Now, why do I pick this most weird and confronting moment? I say, of all the things in Leviticus I could pick, why did I pick that? To say, here's, here's the real issue going on in Leviticus. It's because I think that the big question underlying all of Leviticus is this. How can the holy God dwell among an unholy people? All of Leviticus is God's answer to this question. You want to know how I, the holy God, can dwell amongst an unholy people? Well, if we do it like this, This one question, I think, actually ties all of Leviticus together. How can the holy God dwell amongst an unholy people? And what we're going to do over these first couple of weeks leading up to Easter is we're going to explore this question as it's revealed in Leviticus as it points us forward to Jesus. That's what we're going to do over these couple of weeks leading up to Easter. Okay, now I've just made a claim to you that this is the big question of Leviticus. Can I actually substantiate that? It's always good to sort of push back a little bit and say, well, let's see the evidence. Is this really the point of Leviticus, really? God dwelling amongst his people? Yes, it is. And I can show it to you if you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Let's briefly go there. Leviticus chapter 26. I'm deliberately flipping right towards the end of the book. God has now given out all of his laws. He's told his people how to live as his own. And what he's going to do here from verse 3 is say, what will happen if they obey him? That is, he's making clear the purpose 
of all of these laws? What's the purpose of all these laws? Have a look from verse 3. Chapter 26. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. The land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. The grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Okay, just in one word, what's God promising here? He's promising prosperity. Okay? If you follow my commands, I will, I will, I will give you abundance. I'll give you abundance. But the second thing he goes on to say here is not just prosperity, but peace. Have a look in verse 6. Verse 6. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, none of you shall be afraid. And I'll remove harmful beasts from the land. The sword shall not go through your land. So they're going to have prosperity, they're going to have peace. But thirdly, verse 9, they're going to have lots of descendants, or because I'm on a P thing, progeny, <laughs> which means descendants. But it starts with a P. Verse 9. I will turn to you, says the Lord, and make you fruitful and multiply. You will confirm, oh, sorry, and will confirm my covenant with you. Fruitful and multiply. They're going to have lots of descendants. But then the climax of it all is verses 11 and 12. He promises his presence. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Remember what I said before, what's the big question? How can the holy God dwell with an unholy people? And you can see here what's the purpose of all of the laws. He says, and I will dwell with you. I will walk among you. Now, stop for a moment. Think, prosperity, peace, lots of kids, God dwelling with them. If you know your Bible a little bit, your Genesis, Exodus, ringing any bells yet? It should did God make any promises about you'll have lots of kids and I'll take you to a... Yes, he made a promise, a covenant promise to Abraham. Right? He said, I will make you into a great nation, lots of kids, and I'll take you to your, to your own land. And there I... The whole point, see, is that Leviticus is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. How does God's promise to Abraham get, get fulfilled, that covenant get fulfilled? by what's put in, in, in place in Leviticus. But step back even further. Fruitful and multiply, we read there. Does that ring any bells? Where's that from? Where? Genesis. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. What's the link? Well, you see, what God is doing is from the Garden of Eden, God walked among, in the garden. There was God dwelling with his people, Adam and Eve. There they had all of his abundance. They had prosperity. They had peace. They were told to be fruitful and multiply. But then it was all tragically lost when humanity rebelled against God. And what God has done through the covenant with Moses and through Leviticus is God is recapturing his purposes for all of creation. You're meant to pick up the echo. Leviticus 26 is meant to sound like the Garden of Eden. So you suddenly realise when you're reading Leviticus, this isn't just some laws 
for a particular people 3,000 years. This is the one true living God recapturing his purposes for all of creation. But tragically, when you read Leviticus 26, the Israelites chose not to obey these laws that God gave them. And there's, there's the, uh, then there's the whole second half of that chapter, chapter 26, which is what happens if you choose to not live these laws. And tragically, the nation of Israel chose the second half of the chapter, not the first. Because the second half of the chapter, I'm going to leave you to go away and read it, the second half of chapter 26 describes all the suffering and judgement that God's people will come under when they deliberately choose to not listen, to be stubborn in their heart, to reject God and his ways. He says, you will come under judgement. But, but friend, you already knew that, right? Because we saw what happened to Aaron's son. When you decide to reject God's ways, it ends in destruction. But even right at the end of chapter 26, there's a little bit from verse 40 onwards where the Lord says, but even then, when you've suffered under my judgment, if you turn back to me, even then, if you confess your sin and turn back to me, he says, I will remember my covenant the promise he made to Abraham. I will remember my covenant and fulfil his purposes. And you know, friend, where is Jesus in what we've seen today? That's where Jesus is. Chapter 26, verse 40 onwards. Because jump forward 1,200 years. Jump forward to another priest, not Aaron and his sons, but another priest whose name was Zechariah, who goes into the temple one day to do his priestly service and he receives a vision from God, a visitation by an angel who says, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a great one but he's going to prepare the way for an even greater one. Speaking of Jesus. And Zechariah, when he's finally able to speak after this, he launches into a song and you know what he says? He praises the one true living God. He says, you have remembered your covenant which is exactly what God said he would do in Leviticus 26 when his people finally come back to him. He says, I will remember my covenant. And there is Zechariah praising God, saying, you've remembered your covenant in the sending of Jesus. And who does the New Testament tell us that this Jesus is? He is God incarnate, God dwelling amongst us. John chapter 1. So you can see how the things that Leviticus is talking about, God's presence amongst his unholy people, it comes to its climax in the person of Jesus. But you know what? You and I, and I'll finish with this, you and I live in the age of Jesus. New Testament tells us that Jesus is alive. He has been raised from the dead. He lives. And what's more, he has poured out into your heart and my heart, if you're a follower of his, the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the last little connection for you. When the Holy Spirit was poured out by Jesus, the risen Jesus, the first time onto the apostles at Pentecost, do you remember how the Spirit appeared? I think God made it so that it appeared, there was a visible form, so that people would go, oh wow, here's the Spirit. What was the visible form? It was fire. Flames of fire. What happened back in Leviticus? 
flames of fire came out from the presence of the Lord. And we went, well, that's weird. That's not my experience. Hasn't God poured out the fire of his spirit into you, if you're a Christian person? The fire of his holy presence, the presence of Jesus, in the person of the Spirit, taken up residence in your heart and life. Do you see where the glorious trajectory of Leviticus lands? It lands in Carswell 159, in the hearts and minds of God's people, in the power of his Spirit that dwells within us. I hope you're able to come back the next couple of weeks as we explore how can God do such a thing? How can the holy God take up residence in my life as one who is not holy? As we explore that with the aid of him speaking to us through Leviticus. I quickly pray a prayer for us and it's just going to quickly give us an announcement as we head out. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that is light into our darkness. We pray, please Lord, that you would write its truth deep into our hearts and minds so that we might know you Know what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus and live to serve and honour you 